Hi, friends. This is episode 53 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi, everybody. What a delight to be able to spend some more time with you. I can't wait for you to get into this kingdom tale, but before we get there, I just want to make sure that you know that you can go to our website, thebiblelab.com, and download the study guide that goes right along with this. And you're going to want it because you want to be able to see all the words and all the questions and everything that we're going through so you can follow along most easily. Also, we want to invite you to start your own Bible lab right in the community that you live. We have a whole ministry team that's going to help you out and get that off the ground and to answer all the questions that you might have. And we even have on our website available the interaction card packets that you hear all about and what we use all throughout the program. And they're available to you at a very low cost. So let us know if we can help you get one started in your community. Now, today we're going to take a look at a parable that probably most pastors in your church uh, might not have ever spoken about this before. So it's exciting to take a look at a parable that is really so enigmatic. And so we're going to take a look at the parable that Christ told about the shrewd manager. And I can't wait for you to see what Jesus says about God's character today. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Here we go. Number one, I am less likely to get fired than the people sitting to the left and right of me. <laughs> uh, you're taking your time on this one. Oh, let's look at this. <laughs> I'm seeing some relationships being torn apart right now. I'm seeing sharp glances at people next to you, if they're raising a yes card, <laughs> I'm seeing several maybe cards, which by the way means yes, they're less likely to get fired than you. <laughs> I, I don't know how lunch is gonna go, but it's already, it's already heated. Number two, in general, people are overwhelmingly gracious when they want something in return. In general, people are only overwhelmingly gracious when they want something in return. I'm seeing a majority of yes. I'm seeing about, looks like about 85% yes. <laughs> and it looks like about 10% no and 5% maybe. Yes. Whenever someone is just overly gracious with you, don't just stop and you think, okay, what do they want? What do they want? When your child comes to you and says, oh, mother, most beautiful, generous, and talented mother. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate all your sacrifices. You know you're about to be asked to sacrifice yet one more time. So it makes us suspicious when someone's overly, overwhelmingly gracious with us. Number three. People become more generous as they get older. Hmm. <laughs> I'm hearing some groaning here. I'm thinking majority of yes. Looks like about 80% yes, 5% no, and the rest maybe. Maybe. What do, what do those maybes mean? Does it mean maybe if they're generous when they're younger, then they're generous when they're older? Uh, if they're an old codger, a stingy person, they get more stingy? You never know. Number four, I do not own a single thing. Mm. <laughs> Someone just said, that sounds like a trick question. Let me help you. <laughs> They're all trick questions. <laughs> and uh, welcome to the Bible lab. I saw a majority of no. It looked like about 80% no, 20% yes. I didn't see very many maybes. Okay, so most of you said no, and that now it's a triple negative. What do I do with that? Okay. <laughs> I do not own a single thing. Most of you said no, which means that you do own something. Okay. 
Do you want to vote again? <laughs> You're not wrong. You just held up the wrong card. Okay? We'll talk about that in a moment. Because if you don't understand this from a uh, secular level, you'll never understand what Jesus said on a spiritual level. And what Jesus is about to say is you don't own anything. As much as you think you've worked and you've, you've been blessed into owning something, the, the reality is, yes, you've been blessed, but God owns everything. You don't own anything. It's a mirage. It's a hallucination that you own anything. And so we'll talk about that in a moment because I see Greg's head shaking and that really makes me nervous. <laughs> Number five, God would rather have us steal from him than to be unmerciful to others. Oh, you guys are taking so long for this one. You have to vote, I'm sorry. No abstentions. If you can't figure it out, just raise a maybe. I'm seeing about 65% yes. I'm seeing about 5% no, about 10% maybes, and the rest are breaking the rules by not voting. And that group looked like about 70 people not voting today. Okay, this is the most difficult thing that we're going to go through. We are going through a parable that most pastors never preach. Why? You're about to see. It's extremely difficult because it deals with someone stealing from the master and being commended for it. Dishonest behavior, and the master says, way to go! I didn't like you before, and now I love you, now that you've done some dishonest behavior. What does that say about the character of God? Most pastors avoid this because as we typically read Scripture, we read it to ask the question, what does this say about mankind? What does this say about what I need to do in order to receive heaven? We don't read the Bible the way it was written, which is, what does this say about the character of God? And so most people in reading it, they really struggle with the parable that we're about to go into. In my opinion, the most avoided parable of all scripture. So before we even have a chance to get into it, Greg, I'm trusting you not to get us completely off track. Help us out. What we own is our freedom of choice and our free will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, Greg, I need you to understand something. Yes, sir. Okay. Today I have several of my family members visiting from out of town. I need you to promise you're going to make me look good this week. Because they're going to go home and they're going to be like, what an embarrassment. But no, you're absolutely right. And based on those two things, we get to the core of what Jesus is trying to say. Because in your free will and your freedom of choice, you have to choose God's way over mankind's way. And today, we're going to take a look at part of God's way that most people misunderstand because they read Scripture asking, so what am I supposed to do? And today, we're going to ask the question, so what does that say about God's character? And we're going to stay on track, because it has everything to do with what you just said, Greg. I was just teasing with you. But it has everything to do with what do we do with our free will and our choice? Because we have to choose to do things according to God's character in order to answer the question, so what does that mean I'm supposed to do? And so to start out, I want you to, I want you to ponder something. Do you agree or disagree with something? Do you agree or disagree? God would prefer us to ease the regulations of the church rather than to hold members accountable to the highest standards of religion. Agree or disagree? I want to hear your comments. How are you wrestling with this? Agree or disagree? God would prefer for us to ease the regula regulations of the church rather than to hold members accountable to the highest standards of religion. Back here. I think we struggle with that because we often like it black and gray, or what is it, black and white <laughs> rather than gray? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we love that gray area. 
Yeah. But in researching with the uh, warm-up this week, there was a suggestion, and hopefully not ahead of my time and so I don't get in trouble with your family, <laughs> um, that the confusion over the uh, merchant bending the rules or the regulations uh -huh. was consistent with Judaic law at that time. Mm -hmm. There were certain percentages that he was allowed to give. Mm -hmm. And we look at him and said, he was dishonest. Why did the master say he was good? But he looked and said, oh, okay, you know, I'm getting the pink slip for what I've done mm -hmm. and I'm going to walk and I'm going to give away my commission mm. yeah. rather than the master's profit. And so what I was to receive, I will give that. And then people are going to love me and I can go to Pastor Roy's house and say, hey, can I camp out here? I don't have a job anymore. Yeah. And don't forget the discount that I gave you. I just saved you X number of percent or X number of dollars. A lot of people look at that. Exactly. Thank you, Thad. Down here. The regulations of the church are a human use of scripture to decide the rules by which I should live by. Mm -hmm. God wants a relationship with us mm -hmm. of which the regulations may or may not contribute. Mm. And so God is interested in the relationship rather than the, regu than the regulations. Mm. You got a lot of love it cards on that one. Absolutely. All right, coming back here. My question is, what does it mean to ease the regulations of the church? Does that mean we allow people to worship with us who disagree with us? Does that mean, I hope so, does that mean we change God's law because somebody doesn't agree with that? I don't think so. Hmm. But does that mean we love less because somehow some in our congregation don't agree with us? What does it mean to change the, the regulations of the church? That is the ultimate question. And that is the cause for more disagreement in religious organizations like ours than anything else. Is What is the threshold? How, how generous, how gracious are we to be on certain things that are core in our belief? Who can hold office in church? Who cannot? This is going to become a very big, big issue. You think we've wrestled with issues about whether women can be pastors or not. Just wait. Is it okay to have an LGBTQ deacon in the church? Just wait. It's, that's the next conversation. So the question is, how much does God want us to ease the regulations but hold fast to things that are non-negotiable? Ultimately, what is non-negotiable. And so, Nancy, you brought up the point. And this will be the ultimate application point we're going to have to come to when we see the character of God through a story that the Son of God shared. Red Mike, down here, Brian. I was going to say the uh, uh, verse that comes to my mind is, I would desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I, th I think of also like uh, Naaman. He just got cured of his leprosy, mm. and he's going back and he's taking some of the uh, dirt with him. And he, and he explains to the prophet, he says, you know, I'm going to worship your God, but when my boss, the king, brings me into his temple, he's going to bow down. And I may have to bow down with him mm. as he worships. Mm. I'm not really worshiping. It just mm -hmm. saying, looks that way. Yeah. So, um, so we look at, you know, so what would you do in that situation? Mm -hmm. You know, are you going to say, well, you're bowing to an idol, so, you, you know, here's mm -hmm. your leprosy back. It seems that God, who is, we always say is a judge, mm -hmm. isn't really a good judge. And you look at, like, as far as justice goes, he's mm -hmm. way more merciful mm -hmm. than what we deserve, way more um, um, understanding and delays things a lot more than um, what we might. So. Yeah. I agree. Plus, beyond that, he's extremely unfair as a judge because the defense attorney is his son, and they kind of have this inside agreement that they're going to work to make sure every defendant, mankind, if they desire it, are found not guilty. Mike. I'm going to ask a question of every one of us in here. Hmm. How many of us agree 100% on what we believe that religion is? Hmm. We don't. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. We all have different views. We all have different ways of looking at things. Yeah. So when you say a church organizationally, we don't even agree within our own, own organization of what we believe. You're right, Mike. You're right. Because we all tend to have these pet beliefs. These are the ones that are non-negotiable. And if we go through the list here, we would have different lists where the, if we put them in priority order of what is non-negotiable, number one, all the way to what's negotiable, you know, number 28, um, we would all have a different order. Some of us would share, and then we'd feel very confident to speak louder because someone else shares my pet belief and my religious, you know, uh, non-negotiable. But the reality is exactly what you said, Mike. That's why we start uh, having agitation within our church is because different people believe different things are non-negotiable. Exactly. Back here. As far as holding members accountable, we're talking about church discipline or compliance. And, and so I learned one time, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that... The word judgment has the same root as the word discernment. Mm -hmm. And discernment does not include a sentiment of condemnation, whereas judgment may mm -hmm. include a sentiment of condemnation. Yeah. I'm thinking in discipline, we do have a policy of disfellowshipping. Mm -hmm. But in disfellowshipping, does the church commit to continuing relationship outside of church with mm -hmm. a disciplined individual? Mm -hmm. That would be where mercy follows judgment. I, I love that, Marilyn, because what, what you're touching on is the church has specialized in discipline, but they've failed at redemption. And redemption is the process of making sure that your relationship is maintained while you help someone walk back into right relationship. And because of that, we've lost relationships based on disfellowships. Now, you need to understand in our denomination, the past 10 years, I have the exact stats from North America Division, uh, <laughs> Out of all the people who have left the church that we were able to survey in the, in the last 10 years, only 5% was because they had an issue with our doctrine. 91% of the people who have left our church have had absolutely no problem with our church. In fact, they didn't even have a spat with a church member. 91% left because they had no friendships in the church, no relational anchor to keep them in the church, and they drifted away, and nobody responded to them or cared or redeemed them back in relationship because they never had a relationship in the first place. That's why we do the 12 people you love, is because the key to helping people be redeemed is they have to have relationship. With no relationship, we have no influence. With a relationship, we have influence. And so, despite the fact that our perception is that the people that we've lost have been, um, because they've, they've either done something or, or had an issue with our religious tenants, the reality is the vast majority, 91%, just drifted away, and we didn't care. At least we didn't care enough to call them and say, come back. Last comment before we go into, uh, last two comments before we go into scripture. Julie. Uh, I was going to say that I, I grew up back east in the territory where Ellen G. White started her mission. And as a kid, the most overwhelming statement I ever heard at church was, you have to look like an Adventist. You cannot distract or pull anyone else away by the way that you act or conduct yourself or dress in church because you could lead them away from salvation. Mm -hmm. So I went to church with people who honestly I think were probably wonderful Christians, mm -hmm. but the other half of my family was not Adventist. Mm -hmm. And they were so anxious to find anything wrong with them mm -hmm. and to call them hypocrites. And I felt like I was so torn as a growing up. And I went to college, Adventist college, and my parents probably would say that this is worth all the cost of their tuition, that in a Bible class, the pastor said something, their teacher, professor, that kept me Adventist. He said, 
the more we judge people, we just don't realize that they're not on the journey the same place. God is still working on their hearts, and at least they're here, mm -hmm. and they're trying, and they're making progress, but we don't know where they are, mm -hmm. and to have more heart for them. Yeah. And that is not where I grew up. Like, you had to look perfect and hide your coffee or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, <laughs> sorry, I, I had decaf, though. Um, <laughs> your husband just raised a love it card. I don't know what that means. <laughs> At any rate, I think that helped me to understand being an Adventist and having a little more yeah. sympathy. And I was involved several summers ago when I was back east with um, a person being disfellowshipped. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it was brutal. Mm -hmm. I can't even believe that we did that in a church. Yeah. And the person like, oh, she'll come back. Mm -hmm. Never, yeah. never. I was, I, yeah, I don't know. That story has everything to do with what Jesus is trying to express in the parable we're, we're going to. Uh, and so I want you to hang on to Julie's story there and keep the emotion in your mind because Jesus is speaking uh, to two different groups of people when he shares this parable, but he's dealing with some of the same issues. Last comment before we go into scripture. Yes. I had the privilege to grow up in a completely different country and completely different church until I was 15 years old. And I was Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And uh, when my parents and I decided to become Adventist after studying for an entire year, mm. every Saturday from 4 to 6.30, I remember till this day when we, we studied. And uh, all our families, uh, they thought we went to the Jews, mm. um, Jehovah's Witness, because that was what was famous in our country. And when we tried to explain to them uh, it's okay to disagree, you know, agree to disagree is fine. Um, and it was difficult, because like, every Christmas, every Easter, <laughs> it was kind of like an argument. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew it wasn't going to go lead to anywhere because they mm -hmm. weren't prepared to yeah. hear something different. Yeah. And I think I would take that to everybody else, is that sometimes we want to push our truth or what we know in other people, mm -hmm. and sometimes they're not prepared, yeah. or they're not ready to hear what we want to say. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's just, for me, how I dealt with my family's relatives is just to love them mm -hmm. and uh, avoid any argument that is not going to lead to anything else. Absolutely. I love it. A lot of love it cards went up. I, I have a 30-second spirituality test, and that test is absolutely related to what you just said there. My, my test goes like this. Um, when you talk about your faith, uh, do you want to share it or do you want to argue about it? Um, and depending on which direction you go, you either have good news or you have bad news. Um, and we don't have time for the bad news. We have so much good news. Okay. By the time we get through all the good news, then we can deal with the bad news. But quite frankly, God is so full of good news, good luck uh, getting through all the good news to get to the bad news. Exactly. Now, Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 16, this parable that Jesus tells. We're going to go through verses 1 through 15, which is the parable and some follow-up statements of Christ. But if you'll follow along on your study guide, Luke chapter 16, verse 1, starts like this. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quick and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest ma manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth 
to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So tell me, what have you been told? I'm sure many of you have heard this before. For some of you, it might be the first time. But for those of you who've heard this parable before, what have you been taught is the main point of this kingdom tale? What have you been told is the main point of this kingdom tale? Raise your comment card if you want to comment. Otherwise, I'm just going to have you shout it out. All right, looks like you're being private today. So we will shout it out. I'm going to take a um, list here. What's the uh, first thing you've been told this is about? Trust. What? Trust. trust. Okay, trust. What else? Can't serve, two Can't serve two masters. Okay. What else? Honesty. Honesty. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Okay. Faithfulness. What else? Ah. Oh. Stewardship, he says. Okay. Accountability, uh, wordship. Accountability. <laughs> Other than being smart, someone said something just before that. Heart in the right place, okay? Right heart. Okay, and then what was right after that? Account Shrewd. Smart, smarty, <laughs> smarty, okay, what else, integrity, okay, come on, there we go, what else, forward thinking, all right, we'll unpack that one in a, in a second, yes, Okay, uh, the, uh, hang on a second. I'm writing too, pa too fast. I'm writing the second word and the first word together. Uh, king, okay. Uh, Self-preservation. What was that? Okay, that's uh, kind of honesty up there. I'll, I'll leave that one there. Okay, so a lot of these, as we look at, we are looking at, if I can get this to move, there we go, trust, can't serve two masters, honesty, faithfulness, stewardship, accountability, right heart, shrewd, smart or smarty, integrity, forward thinking, self-preservation. How many of these are about the character of God? None. What are these about? Character of man. Okay, remember, Jesus is not trying to demonstrate the character of man. That's not why the Bible was written. If you read the Bible to see what it says about you, it's demoralizing, you hate it, and you'll feel worse after reading it than before you read it. And you'll put it down and you'll never pick it up again because it makes you feel worse. If you flip how you read Scripture and say, but what does this say about God? You cannot put that book down. You can't stop coming to the Bible lab because every time you see what does this say about the character of God, you come away absolutely amazed. Comment over here. Donna. So I was, I was looking up the uh, verses and comparing them to other translations or like Amplified and Message. Awesome. And uh, the Amplified indicates that he wasn't commended for his misdeeds. And that by preparing for the, his future unemployment, that was what the commendation was for what he did. And then the message went so far as to say, street-wise uh, people are always on the alert, looking for angles on surviving 
by their wits. So they were always looking toward the future yeah. and planning ahead. And also, it a little tiny comment in there indicated, well, Christians don't do that so well as street people do. And that's exactly what Jesus said. When you talked about you who are children of the light, you don't do it as good as the people of the darkness, the, the world. Exactly. So Jesus is saying street people are smarter and wiser and shrewd. And you started out by exactly the point. Jesus does not commend the manager for being dishonest. He commends him for being shrewd. Okay. Who owned the stuff that was being discounted? The rich man. It wasn't his money to mess with. Thad shared with us at the beginning, several individuals said, well, he was giving away his commission, uh, he was doing this or that. Uh, and you can read that in several places, but most commentators say that there's nothing to prove that in Scripture. There are no places that say, but he gave his commission. It says that he was being dishonest. And even his behavior by telling the guy to sit down quickly. What baffles me is, the manager didn't even know how much they owed. How much, do, how much do you owe? He's not saying, here, I have a form here. Uh, here's your invoice, unpaid invoice, and it says you owe. No, he's saying, uh, you tell me. I haven't even done the paperwork. Talk about a lazy guy. A manager who does not manage. He has to be told. There's several things I, I want us to catch here before we really dig this thing apart. And there are specific words that the people heard. First off, in verse 1, Jesus talks about a rich man. We know what a rich man is. is a man who's rich. But what about a manager? What's Jesus talk about? Because this is the main character. The word manager, and you have the Greek word there, is actually a compound word. It comes from two words. Oikos, which means a house, and nemo, which means to distribute or dispense. Hence, one who assigns to the members of the household their several duties and pays to each his wages. The paymaster is what this position typically was. He kept the household stores under lock and seal, giving out what was required. And for this purpose, he received a signet ring from his master. So the master, the rich man, did not do the financial dealings. This is the guy who's in charge of all of the financial dealings, and he's not doing anything. He's the laziest guy you can imagine because he's done nothing. So, verse 1, it says, He was wasting his possessions, the rich man's possessions. What does that mean? The Greek word there literally means as wasting or was wasting. So it wasn't just one point in time he wasted just one thing or a few things recently. He had done well up to that point, but he just kind of stopped a little bit. This means that the guy was just a mess from the beginning, okay? Consistently wasting, okay? It had gone on for a long time. Verse 2, the rich man comes in and says, hey, you got you to gotta give an account. In other words, the auditor's here you got to give us some paperwork. We can't even perform the audit. You need to give me some paperwork so I can truly understand what's going on. But literally, the Greek word there means I need you to give back. Okay? I need you to give back the account which is due, which means this guy is financially responsible. If he doesn't cut some deals, if he doesn't have some liquid cash, he's going to have to pay from his own wallet for all the money that should have been in the account. Then in verse 6, we mentioned this just earlier, where the manager tells some of the debtors, the first debtor in verse 6, he says, take your bill. In other words, take back your writings. In other words, the only person that has written down how much they owe is the debtor. He says, okay, you have the paper? Okay, go there. Uh, scratch that out. Change the figures. Is this honest behavior? It's a secret transaction to be hurried through. Sit down quickly. Let's do this. My master hasn't seen how much you owe. So let's change it. He'll never know. This is where the dishonesty comes in. It's the master's oil, the master's bushels of wheat. It's the master's money. 
And the steward, or the manager, depending on your translation, says, sit down, let's cook the books. Let's get a different ledger. The, manager will, uh, the rich man will never know, because only we know how much is really owed. And so I'm going to give you the deal of a century. I'm going to have you sit down. Yeah, you owe me this much, but my master doesn't know that. So let's tell him you only owe this much. Can you pay me that now? You can? Okay, great. The only reason why the steward is doing this is not to replenish his master's storehouse, is it? Jesus tells us in the parable the personal motivation of the manager is quite different. What's his motivation? Save his own skin. Because he's about to get fired. Of that, he's certain. I'm getting fired. I will have no chance of keeping this job. So my motive of giving these incredible deals coupons you've never heard of before to all these people is that when I'm out of a job and I need something personally, these people say, well, hey, he really did me a favor. I owe him one. He wants to build up as many favors as he can so that his own personal experience will not be impacted too greatly. It's selfish behavior at the expense of the master's riches. And yet, the master comes, he's been literally robbed from, and he commends the manager for his shrewdness. Wow, that was really a wise thing to do. Yeah, you're fired. But that was really a wise thing to do because you set yourself up so that the community around loves you. And because you did that, I think that was really shrewd behavior. We're going to unpack what does it say about God's character that at a time when he's robbed and his storehouse is deplenished, he's happy about those who rally the support of other people around them and increase their own personal influence despite the fact that the master paid for it all. Back here, question. I, I don't know if I can quite agree with that. If, if I had a manager and I was the rich man, yeah. this guy was trying to get back at him for getting fired. But if I was another rich man and he cut my bill in half, would I hire him? He's going to do the same thing to me. Ah, yeah. Yeah. This is what makes it baffling. And he, I, I love that you brought it up because he, he, here's... He really condemned himself. Oh, absolutely. He did condemn himself. Yeah. So why would the rich master who was firing him say, hey, that was really good, man. You're really wise. You are so shrewd. That I want, I want others to do that. And then Jesus to repeat it. So thank you. Because where you're at, this is the thing that made people gasp when they were hearing Jesus tell these parables because we're all answering the same question. Is Jesus saying that mankind should do that? That behavior? No. So let's take a step back. Jesus is telling us a story about mankind or he's telling us a story about God? Story about God. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to disregard applying it to mankind. Because God is not trying to tell us the behavior he's encouraging in us. He's trying to tell us the behavior of God in moments like this. In moments that he's ripped off. In moments that people are lazy. They have been given everything by the master. Every blessing that they have is from him. And we sit around and we do nothing with it. We're extremely lazy with the storehouse of heaven. And then there comes a day of accounting. So we have to take a step back and say, okay, if that's the approach, what does it mean, the time of accounting? What was this firing 
in the parable as it relates to mankind's time when they are fired and dispossessed of all of the property of God on this earth. What is that parallel to humanity? You're saying it, death and judgment. Okay. So if death and judgment are the parallel, then when we look at this story, God comes and he says, your time is up. And in that 12th hour of yours, you get serious about how you've been managing the blessings of God. And just like this dishonest manager, you do the exact same thing. You've seen it. You've seen it in some of your own family members where they could care less throughout their life. Some of them have been religious. Some of them have been irreligious. Some of them have been active in their faith. Some have been completely inactive. Some have been Christians, and some have been Christians by title only. But when it comes down to end of life and the definiteness of mortality, you see you're about to die. Have you ever seen a drastic change in people's behavior? I have. People that up until that time, some of them even atheist, now quoting Bible text in the last couple of weeks of their life. They feel it. It's like they've received a notification from God's Spirit himself that says, your time's up. You're about to be dispossessed of this life. You're about to be fired from earth. And it's in those moments that the people began saying, oh, okay, how can I share and be responsible with all the possessions that God has given me? And it's in that moment that people try as much as they can, and many people feel, I've really wasted my time, and in desperation, they try expressing to others their faith. Have you ever noticed some of the people I have, uh, some of the people who seem to be the, 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 the most staunchest, most ultra-fundamental in, in the rules, and then on their deathbed, they're, they're just like totally filled with grace? Oh, it doesn't matter. And, and, and they're very full of mercy. This is the same scenario that Christ is talking about with his disciples, who is the audience here. He's trying to help them understand. When you get down to end of life, there is an accounting. And if you've been very unfaithful to your managerial duties, uh, if you haven't been a good steward, that's where we get the word stewardship from, if you haven't used your time, your talents, your money to really advance the possessions and the kingdom of God on this earth, there will come a day when there is an accounting. And if you realize that day, you don't go out through some quick, tragic uh, ending, there is that moment in your life that you say, so how do I use what I'm in charge of spiritually in the very short amount of time I have? This is where it gets very counter to what I was raised believing about the character of God and what God wants us to do and what Jesus says here. And so let's go through these questions. I'm going to read several of them, and you can respond in whatever order that you want. But first of all, why would God commend dishonest behavior, especially when it's the master's wealth that is being played with? Secondly, what does the firing of the manager represent? We just talked about that a little bit. How does that shed much light on this confusing scene. Let's unpack that a little bit more. And what do you think the debt reduction represents in this kingdom tale? And so if God personally is more inclined for us to act shrewdly like the manager, how do we need to shift the culture of how we do church? Does it change the way that we collect debts? And there's another one if we have time to get to. Who's going to start us out? Right, right over here, Randy. You've gone way past my comment already. I'm sorry. I'm but sorry. It, it, I, I thought when I read this, gosh, this is so unlike everything else. And then the more I read it, the more contiguous it was. When you read about the previous chapter about the prodigal son, this is the prodigal manager. manager. Exactly. I always thought prodigal meant the guy that came back. No, prodigal means the wasteful guy. Yes. And he's wasteful and he's squandered everything and he's... Mm -hmm really, really 
made a, a terrible, and, and everybody was complicit with him. All the mm -hmm. the people he pardoned were complicit with him. Yeah. But yet he was doing something to ensure something later. Absolutely. Randy, that's beautiful. This parable is couched right in between the prodigal son and the rich man and Lazarus. And all three are about the same thing, just a different camera angle. Talking about what do you do with God's generosity. But if you read it the way the Bible's written, it's what does God do with your unfaithfulness? How merciful is he? How willing is he to give and take and say, the most important thing to me is that you're with me. And so I'm willing for you to cut deals with humanity in order to attract them to what you're all about. So on your deathbed, when you are fired from this earthly life, what will people say about you? He was so strict and he upheld most of the doctrine of the church and may we all live like him a miserable life. This parable is much different. He says, I want you to have such an influence on people because of the amount of mercy you showed, because you cut people deals, not because you call them in and say, I'm about to get fired, so you need to pay all your money. I got to cut you some deals, because that's what the master would prefer. Back here. The solution that comes to me is so simple that I may not have understood anything this morning. Well, maybe you've understood all of it. <clears throat> because once we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior and we have a relationship with him, then we have to decide how we're going to solve these problems that the church has. And it's my opinion that the church and the religion is all man-made and man-decided. And when Jesus has for us a decision like this, mm -hmm. Scripture says that it's better to obey God than to obey man. Mm -hmm. And that, on that basis is how I would decide that these men are of the world. They're not... Uh, they're creation of God, and they do the best they can, but then they get obsessed by what they're doing, and they're not into the scripture that says it is better to obey God than to obey man. Yeah. I, I love that comment. It reminds me of a, a statement that I make regularly in Bible study, which is, um, the church is from God's inspiration. The destroying or the demolishing of church is from man's perspiration. Um, we've, the church is God-inspired. It's God-breathed. We wouldn't have a church if God didn't inspire it, but it wouldn't be messed up if it wasn't for all of our perspiration, all of the working that we've tried to do to make sure that we're doing everything necessary so we've paid our fire insurance policies so we will avoid the penalty of the ultimate fire, and uh, we're all good because here's our policy, and we kept all of our end of the policy. We paid our premiums, and we're good to go. Um, but that's not the way God works. And, but the church is still God-inspired. That's why we're here. And that's why we're not dogging the church. We're saying the church is God's inspiration. We, we need to keep hearing where God's breathing and moving where God's breathing. Jennifer. In regards to your question about what does the debt reduction mean and how does it change the way we collect de debts, mm -hmm. and, uh, debts and how we do church, could it be talking about grace the grace we extend one another, um, forgiving one another, and loving mm. one another unconditionally. We seem to have mm. trouble doing that, and we're tit for tat, and we just cannot extend mm. total grace and love the way God does to us. I think, Jennifer, you're absolutely right. I, I think that's the intersection between the character of God and what God wants us to reflect of him. And I think this is the only intersection where it talks about mankind's behavior. Mankind's behavior has to reflect God's character in that the thing that was commended by the rich man, the master, who all commentaries say represents God, is that when they looked and they saw that the, that the man finally realized his place of influence and he used that influence to cut deals with people and not to charge them the full rate, that finally 
the man reflected the character of God. Because God is always looking down and he's finding ways to cut your debt. In fact, he paid the entire bill, but we keep adding to it by saying, but we have to do this and we have to do that. And if you don't do this, then you're not, you're not gonna be saved. God says, look, I want you to reflect my character. It says, look, I've, I'm cutting your debt. And the more you reflect my behavior of it doesn't matter how much you owe, I'd rather you have your debt canceled than you be constantly living in this guilt-ridden experience of I'll never get this paid for. And when you look at this parable, which God is trying to say, this is what I prefer. He's trying to say, look, I prefer it when you act like me. He's talking to his disciples. There's some people overhearing. Who are the people who are overhearing that we reach at the end? The Pharisees. And Jesus directly talks to them and says, you guys have never gotten it. Financially and spiritually, you just don't get it. The character of God is all about using your influence to reflect the character of God, which is all about cutting debts. And once you start rallying people around you by saying, look, Jesus is not this demanding God who says, you have to pay the full price. Jesus is about a God who says, I paid the full price. Let's cut your debts so that you want to be around me. So that when you hear I'm coming, you're excited to run toward me because I'm the guy that cut your debt. I'm the guy that gave you a deal. I'm the one that could have made you have to pay it all, but I cut it. And I said, I want you to get to a place to where now you're living in a place of stress-free, guilt-free, excited because you feel like your life has forward momentum because you're not constantly paying this debt. What Jesus is trying to say in this parable is that once you finally get the character of God, you'll start cutting other people's debt. And as you start cutting people's other debt, you're giving them some slack, you'll find that those people feel indebted to you. And while they're indebted to you, that's your opportunity to reflect the character of the master who says, my greatest desire is to dwell with you. That is absolutely the greatest challenge for us this week is to look at all of the friends and even all of the enemies in our lives and ask the question, how can I cut their debts so I can truly reflect the character of God the way God intends us to represent him? Ah, what an incredible message. And my prayer is with you that you, as well as myself, will be able to do that this week in a mighty way. Now, next episode, you don't want to miss, the parable is called a friend at midnight, but it seems like anything but. Have you ever wondered what God was trying to say about how you should pray to him by this parable of a man coming and pounding on the door at midnight and the man on the inside that seems to represent God says, go away, I don't want to open the door. What is God really trying to say about his character? I can't wait for you to find out because it's so much different than what you've probably been taught growing up. God bless you, and I can't wait for you to come back for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.